This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Good evening. Great to be with you tonight. Uh, Thanks for gathering. If you're new particularly, let me just thank you for coming out and uh, worshiping with us. My name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I just want to welcome and say uh, thanks, for, thanks for being together. If you are new, we are in a series on First Peter. I think we have about four, maybe five, four or five messages, I forget, left. Uh, and then we'll wrap up First Peter. And the next thing we're going to do is a series uh, on worship, corporate worship. But we're going to finish this book first. So today we are in First Peter 4. Rob finished chapter 3 uh, last week. And tonight we're going to cover uh, verses 1 through 11. First Peter 4 verses 1 through 11. So hear God's word. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does." The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we come tonight uh, not in judgment of your word, but we sit under the judgment of your word. Lord, we are here uh, not to evaluate, but ultimately to be evaluated. And we are here tonight to hear afresh the good news of Jesus from your word, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ has ascended and uh, lives and reigns tonight. So Lord, we pray that we would uh, be able to receive the truths of this scripture and that they wouldn't uh, just be a history lesson or a lecture, but that you would penetrate our hearts tonight. We want to be changed people. We don't want to accumulate new facts in our head, but we want to hear truth and knowing the truth, we want to be changed. So stir our affections for you, Lord. Uh, strengthen our will and give us resolve to obey and just change us by your Holy Spirit's power, we pray. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, really, we have two sections of Scripture tonight, and I'm going to combine them and preach them together. They're kind of two different themes. 
Uh, But I was thinking about these two passages, these two sections, verses 1 through uh, 6 and verses 7 through 11 would be the second section. Uh, They both kind of tie together in my mind in terms of application. Uh, In the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the big battle in the Old Testament for for Israel, for God's people, the big battle wasn't Egypt, uh, it wasn't the Canaanites. The big battle for Israel was idolatry wherever they were. The big battle was the worship of idols because what they tended to do was to forget Yahweh, the God who delivered them out of Egypt and miraculously brought them into the promised land and look instead to God's substitutes. So if they needed fertility, needed to have babies, their animals needed to reproduce and it wasn't happening, then they would worship Baal uh, because Baal, uh, the Canaanites taught that Baal would uh, provide uh, fertility. The God of fertility. And so they did this sort of thing repeatedly, looking for God's substitutes. And the reality that is in the New Testament, that is the big battle as well. For us here today, the big battle in the Christian life is the same. It hasn't changed between the covenants. It's idolatry. And it may not be bowing down to a statue. uh, And it may not be, uh, you know, burning incense at a totem pole or something like this. Uh, That's probably not the kind of idolatry most people in the room are involved in. But the kind of idolatry we tend to be involved in is is, is the kind of thing that when we in our hearts substitute something for God, just like Baal for Yahweh, when we substitute something or someone for God, idolatry is when God is not enough, then where do I go? Now, God is enough, but when I think he's not enough, where do I go? Uh, Do I go to a certain person? Uh, to to fill my needs? Do I go to shopping and possessions? Uh, Do I go to food to, you know, help me? Do I go to alcohol? Do I go to leisure? Uh, Do I go to something I feel like I need from other people, like popularity or their respect or their love or something like this? Where do I go when God is not enough? And not only do we individually have idols, but if you look around, it typically is the case that cultures... Uh, that they tend to have cultural idols. There, there, there tends to be patterns in a culture where certain people go to certain things as God, substitute, certain things they believe, certain things they crave, certain things they desire. And I realize in this section that we're looking at tonight, two of our cultural idols are being addressed. This passage, it's easy to say, well, I can't relate to First Peter. They're under physical persecution. This is 2,000 years ago in Asia Minor. I can't even relate. It's modern Turkey. I can't even relate to these people. Uh, and what they're enduring, but we can relate exactly to the idols that he's identifying. Now, I know idolatry is only mentioned once. It's not primarily a passage about idols, but I want to enter into the passage with this in view because it addresses, the passage addresses cultural idols. The first section we looked at uh, is, is this. It, is, it, it teaches this point. We are called to suffer. That's what the first section's about. We are called to suffer. And one of the idols of our culture Uh, in the West, or particularly in America, particularly in Texas, particularly in Frisco, North Dallas, is the idol of comfort. The idol of comfort. And this passage teaches us that we are called to suffer. The second section teaches us that we are called to the church. We are called to be among God's people. And that squarely smacks in the face the cultural idol of independence. 
Because we all love, as good Americans and particularly as good Texans, we love our independence. And we don't want anybody messing with our freedom to do whatever I want, when I want. And being committed to the church means that I die to myself and I serve and prefer other people. So these two passages, we are called to suffer, we are called to the church, and they relate, really address in a significant way and expose the desire for comfort and the desire for independence, neither of which are, or at least the desire for physical comfort in the way we, we chase it, neither of which are biblical goals for the Christian life. So first of all, let's look at the call to suffer. There's good news in this, by the way, but it is the call to suffer. Look at verses uh, 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So he says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking as Christ had when he Suffered. Christ suffered, and ultimately we are going to suffer. And he's going to explain particularly a, a type of suffering, which is persecution in a few verses here. He's going to talk about that. So we don't like that message very naturally. We, we want comfort. We love comfortable homes. We love comfortable cars. We love safe, comfortable neighborhoods. And when anything gets difficult, we have comfort foods that make everything feel okay. We live in a culture that has the highest standards of creature comfort that from any culture in the history of the world. And yet we want more. And the danger is that longing for comfort, uh, we're blind to that so often, and it easily slips into the church, and it easily slips uh, into our understanding of our faith, so that the church many times can become a place to make people comfortable, to make people feel good, and the Bible becomes a collection of sayings that make us feel good and give us physical prosperity in life, um, as long as we have enough faith. It provides that for us, is the teaching. That, that is just very, that's in the air we breathe. Jesus uh, has done everything for me so that I can have everything good right now. The Bible is a collection of sayings that I can draw from to give me a happy, healthy life now. And yet Peter says to suffering people, look, arm yourselves with the very same thinking Jesus had, who suffered in the same way, who suffered in the flesh, because he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, he says. So that, that, that's the message of First Peter. That's the message of the Bible. Chapter 3, verse 18, it said that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So Jesus suffered for us, died for our sins. And because of that, he does bring, there is a biblical kind of comfort. He does bring a real comfort to us. Uh, Jesus' death brings forgiveness, it brings new life, it brings a clear conscience, it brings an assurance of eternal life to live forever and ever with Christ, it brings an inner peace and a joy, it brings relationship with God's people in community. So there's, there is a biblical idea of comfort, we're comforted to bring that kind of comfort to others, but that is the kind of comfort that is a soul comfort. It's not a promise that there will be no physical problems or challenges in life. The scripture does not 
promise that. Matter of fact, the scripture teaches the exact opposite. And here is one place where Peter is saying, get this mindset. One commentator, David Helm, commented on this, and he was talking about Christians in the West and how this is uh, foreign to us. You know, the, we're in the West, the U.S., or Western Europe, or Canada, places like that. Uh, we, we, this is hard for us. This is what he says. It is difficult for Christians here to understand and embrace God's intentions in suffering. We prefer a gospel in which God gives us healthy bodies and bulging wallets. And we too readily think that material blessing is the entitled reward of the gospel. To put it bluntly, the West expects Jesus, comfort, ease, and acceptance from the world. In one sense, Peter calls us to arm ourselves, quote, with the same way of thinking. When he does that, he is saying, beloved, grow up. Get the mind of Christ. Become a person of resolve. Be prepared. If you have been united to him by faith, you will need to identify with him as suffering, with suffering. We're to identify with Christ. It's such a foreign message. It's it's such a foreign message to us. And at one level, it's easy for me to talk about this as someone who's not experiencing severe persecution. But one of the reasons we're going through this book is because we do want to have the mind of Christ. We do want to be ready. Um, I don't know what's going to happen in our culture, uh, but as I look around and as we look at the signs of what's happening, it doesn't look like there's a whole lot more warm hugs in store for the church. I think uh, our viewpoint and the, uh, the, uh, the authority of Christ, the uniqueness of Christ, calling people to believe in Christ alone in a pluralistic society means that, even though we do that with gentleness and respect, as it says, but still calling people to Christ alone means a further marginalization for us, just like the people in Peter's audience, they were marginalized for their faith. And so he is saying, expect this. Now we're not to look for persecution. I don't think we're to invite persecution. We're not going to be, we're not to be foolish and obnoxious and self-righteous because then persecution isn't because we're holy. It's because we're arrogant. And that happens. Some, some of the persecution that comes to the church is frankly, because we're arrogant and we're not humble. And uh, so we can't blame that on identifying with Jesus. We can blame that on our own stupidity, frankly. But uh, we're not to invite it. I don't think we're to pray for persecution um, or something like that. But we are to be, we are to expect it. And we are to be armed with the same way of thinking as Christ. Now, he makes a curious statement here. He says, for the one who has suffered, verse 1, has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, uh, we know he's not saying, we don't interpret that super woodenly, because we know he's not saying that if you suffer, you're perfect and you don't sin. The entire Bible teaches quite the opposite. The entire Bible teaches that we should expect uh, to sin until uh, the return of Christ. We grow in sanctification. We're made more holy. Uh, we gain further and further victory in areas and sin less in areas. But none of us are perfect, perfected until Christ returns. Uh, and then we are perfected. So he's not saying if you suffer, you will never sin. I, I love the explanation of the ESV study Bible uh, about this verse. And uh, I thought it was very helpful. The ESV study Bible says, Peter's point is that when believers are willing to suffer, the nerve center of sin is severed in their lives. What he's saying is that people who are suffering for Jesus at one point made a decision to follow him at all costs. 
And when they made that decision, that severs the nerve center of sin. That act of repentance and desiring to follow Christ, it doesn't mean that we never sin again, but it does at all. But it certainly is a break uh, with the power of sin in our lives in a certain way. So he's saying that suffering and following Christ, identifying with Christ and suffering for it affects us in that standing for him, walking with him is not walking towards sin in the same way. It is a turning from sin to follow Jesus and to be uh, persecuted. Then he goes on to talk about the kind of things that they are no longer to do. So you are suffering because you are no longer living the way you used to. Um, Verse 3, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. So this is all in your past. This is in your rear view, or should be in your rear view mirror, he tells the church. Sensuality, uh, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So just rampant partying, wild lifestyle, licentiousness, debauchery, is what he, that's all debauchery is what he calls it later. So these are first-generation Christians. Most of them are Gentiles. They're first-generation Christians, and they came straight out of the pagan world of Asia Minor. And uh, so this is what their lifestyle was, getting drunk, uh, having sex with people in, in group context, living by passion, lawless idolatry, pursuing every idol of pleasure and, uh, that they desired. So he's saying, this is where you were from. That's how you live. But now you shouldn't do that anymore. And the fact that you don't do that anymore, verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. So he says, you used to be partying like this with all your friends. You turned to Christ. The Holy Spirit gave you new life and changed your heart. And now when they say, do you want to go to the drinking party, the uh, passionate uh, whatever, the, go to idolatry, uh, orgies, whatever it is. When you want to, do you want to go do these things? They're surprised when you say, no, you don't want to do that anymore. They're surprised. That's their first response. Now we all want people to love us. We want, we want the comfort to know that people love us. They like us. They agree with us. They cheer us on. They support us. But Peter says, if you walk with Jesus, you won't walk the way you did before. And people will be surprised by that. And it's not a good kind of surprise. Like, oh, that is great. You know, it's not like a birthday surprise. It's not a surprise. It's more like they're shocked. What? You don't want to go? Why? Well, I'm going to go because I believe in Christ now. What? What? Who is this? What, what kind of God is this that you can't do? We believe in gods too, and we can do all that. Why, why can't you do that? We, you can follow God and do that. You don't think I follow God? You know, that's where it goes. So they are surprised. They are surprised by that. And uh, that, that's what he's saying. You should expect that they would be surprised. And not only are they surprised, but it gets worse. It says, and they're surprised when you won't do that stuff with them. And they malign you. So they, they turn against you, they malign you. That's the, some of the persecution they're experiencing in the church here. You won't do the same thing. Now, it doesn't say they malign you because you're judging them. It doesn't say they malign you because you're self-righteously condemning them. It doesn't say anything like that. It says they malign you because you don't join in doing the same things with them. So he's not saying, hey, you people are all having a really haughty attitude. And so people think, man, you're holier than thou, and they malign you. He's just saying, you won't participate. 
You won't participate in this kind of living. And so because you won't do that, because you're answerable to God, they're shocked by that. And all of a sudden now they're in a position where they're going to start coming against you. Why? Because you won't join them. You're not doing anything. You're just not doing what they want to do. And he says, because of this, you will be maligned. Now, as I said, there are times when we get pushed back and we deserve it because we're a new believer, and at the Thanksgiving table, we told the whole family they're all going to hell because they don't believe like we do. And that was immature, new believer, not helpful. And God, there's a lot of grace, and God helps new believers do all that. So there's certain times we're maligned (laughs) because we just weren't acting like Jesus, okay? But what he's saying is here, there's, you're going to be maligned when you're just living for the Lord. You're just, he didn't say you're on a street corner condemning everybody with a sign. He just said, you're just not going to go get drunk with them. That's all he says. And you're going to be maligned. There, the truth is that there are times when following Jesus will serve as a conviction to another person who watches you in such a way that they will, they will want to resist that. They won't say, well, we're pluralistic. You have your way. You don't want to get drunk. That's fine. I do. We, let's all get along here because there are, there are many truths and there are many ways and let's love everybody. No, that doesn't work. We're not pluralistic. I don't like that you're saying what you won't do what I'm doing. So even though you didn't say anything about it, I feel judged. And so now I'm going to malign you. This happens when you're not even out looking for trouble and trouble finds you. R.C. Sproul in a book called The Holiness of God tells a story that I found fascinating. And it's a story about Billy Graham. Billy Graham played golf. He was invited to play golf with President Fords this long time ago uh, and two PGA professionals. And so they played their round of golf. And then when they were done, um, a guy approached one of the tour pros that, that was in the foursome. And, uh, and it says this. Sproul recounts a story like this. He says, after the round of golf was finished, one of the other pros came up and said, hey, what was it like playing with the president? And with Billy Graham, the pro unleashed a torrent of cursing and in a disgusted manner said, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. With that, he turned on his heel and he stormed off heading for the practice tee. So his friend follows him and then he sits down and he doesn't even say, he said his friend said nothing, sat down with him. He sat on the bench and watched. And after a few moments, the anger of the pro was spent. He settled down, and his friend said quietly, Oh, was, was Billy really uh, rough on you out there? And the pro heaved an embarrassed sigh and said, No, he didn't even mention religion. I just had a bad round. The end of the, the incident, Sproul concludes, astonishing. Billy Graham is so identified with religion, so associated with the things of God, that, in, that his very presence was enough to smother the wicked man who flees when no one pursues. Luther was right. The pagan does tremble at the rustling of a leaf. He feels the hound of heaven breathing down his neck. He feels crowded by holiness, even if it is only made present by an imperfect, only partially sanctified human vessel. It's so true. Now, it's not in every case, but it is the case that if we follow the Lord, even if we're just trying our best to humbly follow the Lord and not stir things up, it stirs things up because people have a conscience 
And when their conscience is pricked, they can inquire and ask questions or they can resist and push back. And that's what Peter is describing. They malign you. They malign you. Nobody really has a problem with a Christian who's honoring the Lord and serving him. Their real problem is with the Lord. It's always with the Lord. The, the, and, and, but we can take it out on someone else. We can respond to someone else. But it's the Lord that brings conviction. And it's the Lord that, that, uh, that, that, that uh, makes us aware of his holiness, even through imperfect, fallen Christians who are sort of just limping by trying to obey the Lord. He says, listen, they, if you turn and you follow the Lord, um, they're going to be surprised. They're going to malign you. And he says, but they will have, verse 5, they will have to give an account to the one who judges the living and the dead. It's comforting to these Christians who are being persecuted. He's calling them throughout to love people, He's calling them out to be gentle and respectful. He's calling them to be submissive to the governing authorities, servants submissive to masters. He's saying live a life of humble submission, honoring Christ in all you do. That's what he's telling them to do. And he says, listen, God's going to judge. You don't, it's not on you to judge, to bring vengeance and to bring judgment on unbelievers. The Lord's going to do that. And you need to expect that some are going to resist you. Everybody is not going to carry around pom-poms celebrating you and your Savior. It's just not going to happen. And so he's telling them to have that mind, have this mindset, have this expectation about your life. We're called to anticipate resistance and suffering. Let me ask you tonight, is there resistance in your life? Is there resistance? Does anyone at work or does anyone at school know you're a Christian? Does anyone know? Do any of your neighbors know? Has anyone in your extended family know and maybe brought some resistance? If not, that may be the primary issue that this text speaks to us about. It may not be primarily, how do I deal with the people who are maligning me? It may be, how do I live my faith in a more open way, not looking to be maligned, not looking for trouble, but the reality is when the light shines, there's a reaction in the darkness, uh, always. This, this last Friday, we were sitting around as pastors and our wives, and we were uh, having a meeting where we were doing just what you did this week as well in our community group, doing what you did. We went through the text of last week's message, First Peter, and several of us in the room, we talked about where's the, this question I'm asking you in essence, where's the resistance? And several of us talked about the fact that, you know, we're, we're not very excited with the lack of resistance in our lives. In other words, there's a problem that I don't get more uh, pushback at points in my life. And we talked about that. What does that mean? Where do people know of my faith? And uh, had a, had a bit of a challenging kind of discussion about that at one point uh, for the Lord challenging us, Lord, I, I want to be not obnoxious, not a target because of my, but I want to so love you that people would be either drawn to Christ or curious, or some would, as this says, they are, they're going to resist that because of what it means about you, because I look so like you that their resistance of you shows up in resistance uh, towards me. And that's what the scripture says. Second Timothy 3.12 says this, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be perse- persecuted. 
All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what Peter's saying. Have this mindset. Jesus said it this way. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15. Peter heard John say that. I mean, heard Jesus say that. I'm assuming he was there. Peter heard that. And now Peter is taking that to a church and he's saying, oh yeah, this is what Jesus said. And he's telling them, have the same mindset. They're going to be surprised and they're going to malign you, but they will answer ultimately to the Lord. And so it goes on to say, we bring them the gospel. We preach the gospel uh, and we bring them the gospel. And even those who've already died and believed that they, well, there's a, there's a situation there he talks about, what about the dead? I think it's people who believed as Christians and already died. And there was a concern. Are they going to see the return of Christ? What happens? They died. And he says, they'll live by the spirit. They've experienced judgment. They died in the flesh, physically died, but they will live by the spirit. So he talks about that. But we want to bring the gospel to people and trust the Lord. We want to love them. We want to care for them. We want to grieve over them. He's saying, don't take odds and be defensive or offensive with them. Entrust it to the Lord. He will settle. He will settle things, judge the living and the dead. So we're not called to comfort And if we are living our life for comfort, then we may not experience what he's talking about here. We're called to live for Christ. We're called to be comforted by the Spirit. We're called to receive the blessings he's given us and use them for his glory. Uh, And we are to anticipate that in some times, in some way, at some point in our life, um, that we will experience some kind of resistance. Secondly, he talks about a call to the church. Peter writes with an urgency in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Does that mean Jesus is coming tomorrow? Well, he didn't. He wrote this, you know, 2,000 years ago. He didn't come the next day. But what it means is when he says the end of all things is at hand, he means that Jesus could come. He means that everything in salvation history that needed to happen before the return of Christ uh, happened. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus was buried. Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And then Peter said, we're living in the last days. So from the time that the Spirit was poured out, that became the period of the last days in which Christ could return. So Christ could return at any time. And so he's saying that the end of all things is at hand. There's an urgency here. Um, Everything, the table is set. Everything, the time is now to live, what does he say? A self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So he says, okay, times are intense. Time, this is real It's time to be sober-minded. That means clear-headed. It's time to live with clear thinking, to live with discernment, to have self-control, not like you lived before, which we just went over, but to live sober-minded, and that will affect your prayers for the sake of your prayers. So he's saying if you're discerning and you realize the world around you, you realize your own needs and vulnerabilities, you realize the temptations around you, you realize people around you that need Christ, you realize the coworkers you have that are in darkness headed towards hell, how they need the Lord, how we need his power to open up a door to reach them, uh, all these kinds of things that he's been talking about, how we need the grace of God to help us to remain submissive uh, even when those in authority are opposing Christ. So we need the grace of God in all those things. And so when we're discerning, when we are clear-headed, we will pray. Sometimes when, when our prayer life is not robust, it doesn't mean that we lack discipline, though we may. But sometimes a weak prayer life means, man, I'm just not living with my eyes open. Because there's stuff to pray about all the time. And if I'm really living with my eyes open, and I really see what's at stake, 
uh, it's going it's to push me to prayer. So sometimes prayerlessness is a sort of laziness that I'm just not aware spiritually what's going on all around. So he's saying, be clear-headed and it'll affect your prayers. And then as sober-minded prayers, we are called to the church. We're called not to our own independence, but we're called to commit ourselves to other people. We're called to commit ourselves to other people, which means difficulty and sacrifice ultimately. And that's what this next section is about. We're going to look at what he says. We're called to love one another. Difficult. We're called to show hospitality. uh, Difficult. We're called to use our gifts. uh, Difficult, generally speaking. So they're all, again, he's saying, look, you're called to the church. People are suffering. You're called to be together. And ultimately for us in our culture, that means a loss of some of our independence. Because many of us are fine with church if it means just sitting in a meeting and hearing some nice music, and hearing some teaching, and maybe occasionally serving with the kids or something like that. You know, maybe, maybe we can do that because that doesn't really impinge on my independence, depending on what age of the kids you put me with. But generally, that doesn't, I can still sort of do what I want to do. I can still sort of do what I want to do. I can still just, it can still serve me. But if I'm going to labor in the way he's about to talk about, and I'm going to be committed to you, and I'm going to put your good above my good, then that means I'm going to move from consumer, who's just sitting here, it's about me, to I'm going to move to contributor, loving you, serving you, caring for you, when it's not convenient. He's even going to mention that. He anticipates that when he talks about hospitality. So this, this just, I read this, it sounds so nice. Hey, love one another. That's great. Amen. Preach it, brother. Hey, love one another. That sounds so easy until you've got to love someone that's unlovable and they've got to love you and you're unlovable, by the way. Then it's just not so great. And the independent says, well, I don't need that. I'll just go somewhere else and be independent until someone's unlovely. And then I'll go somewhere else. And then I'll just drop out altogether and listen to some podcasts and buy a worship, download, download some worship music and do church my way. And he's saying, no, no, the times are serious. People are being persecuted, pulled together. And here's the first thing he says. Number one, verse eight, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, this is really good news in many ways, because he's saying the church is an environment where there's to be sincere love for people. And we're sinners, but there should generally be a sense in the, in the church, when the church is operating as, as God designed it, and the Spirit's at work, there's a sense of which this is family. And there's a welcome, and I'm loving others, and they're loving me. And so the church really is a refuge. When, you, when, you, when the church is a community of love, that's a refuge from a hostile world. Now, we're not to separate ourselves from the world in the sense that we hide from, that, that the church is, is, is a place of escape, where we're not in the world. Because we are to be in the world, but not of it. But, but having said that, we are to be in the world. We are to be a light in the world. But having said that, the church, especially if people are being persecuted, like here, especially if people are being maligned, the church is a refuge. Because that Wednesday night community group all of a sudden becomes not just something that's an obligation, that's something I guess I got to do, but it becomes a place where I'm coming to bear other people's burdens. I'm loving them. And by the way, someone's got a testimony tonight about how they were maligned at work and how they, you know, wouldn't do what was asked of them, which was to lie and to deceive maybe in a certain sale or a certain uh, presentation, whatever it was, uh, 
uh, they weren't willing to lie. And so now they are not going to get a promotion. And they're, man, there's all this gossip and slander about them. And man, they're getting beat up because they're just trying to follow the Lord. And all of a sudden, that place of love becomes a place of support and care and strength. When there's persecution going on, you don't make it alone. The truth is none of us make it alone anyway. We weren't created to make it alone. We're created to make it among the people of God. But when persecution's going on, like in 1 Peter, it's all the more important the church be loving. Love one another. It's it's family. And as family, it means that we have the church has all the quirks, the challenges, the misunderstandings, the sins, the annoying habits, the disappointments that you find in your family, your extended family maybe, for instance. Maybe you don't find all that stuff in your immediate family, but most families have some weird stuff, some just difficult people. Some ch- most families have some drama. And any church where anybody knows anyone at all, unless you're like in a stadium hearing somebody speaking going home, okay, that's fine. But if there's any community at all, there's going to be a challenge to love one another. And there's going to be opportunities to love one another. And it's a beautiful thing, but it's a difficult thing at times. And so he says, love one another. He says, keep loving one another. Keep doing this earnestly. That means with a sincere heart, genuinely, not fake, but real genuine love, because love covers a multitude of sins. So he's actually saying that loving one another, the church is to be an environment. And I say the church because he says one another. He's writing Christians. He's talking about how Christians relate here. Uh, the, the church is one another, that loving one another, that we can actually, there is a covering of sins that happens there, which is a beautiful thing. Now, what does that mean? How does loving one another cover sins? Doesn't Jesus, isn't he the only one that can cover sins? Yes, Jesus's blood is the only atonement, which is a cover for our sin. You can't cover someone's sins as Jesus did, but you can apply what Jesus does to someone else. And, and that is when Jesus covers our sins, what does he do? Well, he shows forgiveness to us for our sins. So covering other people's sins can be accomplished when we share the same mercy with others that we've received from Christ. The church should be a place where people love one another, and that is shown in the same way God relates with us. He doesn't hold our sins against us. We don't cover in the sense that we make atonement. Only Jesus did that. But we apply that atonement to others in the the way we relate to them. So we forgive The church should be the most forgiving place on the planet. When we're together, when we offend one another, and we seek to reconcile, we should forgive one another, and it should stand out as light in the darkness. It should be sweet-smelling. It should be joyful. It should be wonderful to see forgiveness extended. Uh, There should be an overlooking of sins, that there are times when love covers a multitude of sins because there's an overlooking of an offense, towards us. We don't have to point out every little thing and let every little thing store up. What if God pointed out constantly to you every little sin? Constantly. His blood has covered our sins. And so there, the church should be the place where we are willing to overlook offenses, and we should be the most difficult people in the world to offend. We really should. Humble people are hard to offend. Proud people are prickly and are very easy to offend. Everything you said is offensive to them because they're all about themselves. But the humble person is not easily offended because the humble person can see God and can see the good uh, and wants to act in a way to love others. 
So we should be willing to overlook offenses, but we don't overlook all offenses because love also means going to someone when there is offense, an offense and talking about that humbly, but pointing that out and getting, uh, asking forgiveness and working through a process of, of being reconciled and making peace with one another. So we should overlook offenses, but we don't look ever, overlook everything. Sometimes something is a rub that really hinders a relationship that we need to talk about. And we should be willing to hear that and then willing to exchange forgiveness and love one another. That's a covering of sin, as opposed to allowing the sin to separate people and allowing the sin to pile up through unforgiveness, through bitterness, through holding things over. What does love do? 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. That's covering sin, not keeping a record of wrongs, because I could overlook that or because we dealt with that. Either way, (laughs) that is not keeping, uh, keeping a record is, well, they did that to me last year, or they did that to me 20 years ago. And whatever, we separate. So that's, that's what he's saying. Love one another. And that means a commitment of our lives together. Secondly, he says, show hospitality. Show hospitality. That's verse 9. So we're to commit ourselves to God's people is what he says. That's the general idea. That means we're to love one another. There's three things. Secondly, we show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So I love this. The end of all things is at hand. Be sober-minded and have some people over for a party. That's kind of what's going on here. So I like that. Show some hospitality. Now, in the, most, in the strictest application of this letter, here's what that probably meant. Um, it probably meant in their day that uh, there weren't many inns in a particular city, and inns were typically dangerous. So you were dependent on a good citizen to give you housing if you were traveling through a town. So what would typically happen, you'd go to the town square, and around sunset, people would come out and invite folks that needed a place to stay into their house. And so he probably, hospitality oftentimes (coughs) meant providing lodging for travelers. But I think it means more than that, because he says, show to one another, right? Show hospitality to one another. He's writing to these churches. He's talking about Christians, but there's some sense of hospitality toward one another. That might be the strictest application, and we, we could do that. Uh, but as I look around the room, most everybody here that I'm aware of, you all have a place you're going to tonight. And so he's not saying, have lots of slumber parties at the church. You know, have, hey, we come over and just let's stay. He's not just saying that. I think what he's saying is that there needs to be an attitude where we include and where we welcome one another. That's an attitude of heart, which means inviting a stranger or a traveler or something like that. It can mean that. But it's the one another. It also means opening my heart to those that I'm in community with. And so I believe you could fulfill this command in 10 minutes. I'll be done in less than that. So the service is over. You could show hospitality right now. With an open heart, you could reach out to someone who doesn't know anyone here. Uh, you could invite someone out to dinner right now or say, come over to my house or um, th- this does, we don't have to wait till, hey, when's a traveling missionary need a place to say so I can do that verse in first, uh, in first Peter 4? We can do this tonight. It's a heart that welcomes. It's one that says, hey, I, I'm beyond myself. Independence is it's all about me, but I want to open myself and how can I extend the love of God to others in practical ways? Having them in my home is a primary way that's in view here or in my apartment having them wherever you live, in your home. But maybe you're like a student and that's not really, you know, well, I, well like I'm in a dorm. I get, yeah, you could have someone in your dorm, but maybe it means more than, maybe it means inviting someone to coffee. Maybe it means having, to, let's go out to dinner. 
And hospitality means I pick up the check, right? That's hospitable. That's a way to show hospitality. Or maybe it means inviting a mom and her kids out to you with you and your kids, uh, ladies, when you're going to the park. And it's just you're showing a welcome to someone, involving them in your life, taking an interest in them, taking an initiative towards them. And then this is what he says. Show hospitality. The Bible is so real without grumbling. Why does he say that? Because independence says it's all about me, but being involved in loving one another means I need to take certain, uh, I need to do certain things to show love to you, which may be inconveniences to me. I was thinking about this. I've never, I didn't talk to my wife about this, but uh, I was thinking about this this afternoon. If we logged family fights in our, in our family, uh, arguments, uh, not violent fights, but disagreements, verbal disagreements in our family, uh, I could look back over and saying, getting the house clean to have people over, that is a hot source of disagreement. Did you sweep? Hey, I swept last time. I, but I asked you to sweep. Well, why didn't he sweep? He, 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 whoa. I mean, it does, just whatever it is, just getting ready, the pressure, they're going to be here in 10 minutes. And we got to look happy and welcoming and loving Jesus. They're going to be here in 10 minutes. Well, the food's burned. Go buy something. Else. I don't, you know, it's just, a, it's just, there's an intensity. We're going to have somebody over. And often that's motivated by wanting to impress someone than wanting to serve them. If I want to serve them, I can say, hey, you know what? The food burned. We didn't sweep the floor. That kid's over there. You know, everything's a wreck, but this is who we are. We love you. Can you wait one minute? We're going to call out for pizza and we're going to bring it. And most people go, oh, wow, that's okay. Your house looks just like my house does. And my kids were fighting too. And Right? So, but we tend to grumble because it's about us. So show hospitality without grumbling. You know, don't just have your group. Hey, we're growing out. Our friends, we're going out to dinner. Oh, I invited so-and-so. Well, I don't really like so-and-so. I don't even like them. I'm not comfortable around them. Grumble, grumble, grumble. No, show hospitality. Yes, great idea. I should have thought of that. Man, I feel stupid. Why didn't I invite? Yeah, I should have. Opening the heart. hospitality is a temptation to grumble because it caves in on the world of me and everything oriented to me. It means I got to work. It means I got to pay. It means everything doesn't go just like I would want it. It means I didn't have everybody in the room that was my, you know, all my friends weren't there. We were reaching out to newer people. That's what it means. And so it means a selflessness. And so he's saying, look, hey, church, show hospitality to one another. Not only does that make the church a refuge, but that is a stellar witness to the community. I'm, I, they're maligning, they're resisting, they're gossiping, they're slandering, they're harming. But man, I got to say something. The pe- those people do really good. They really do love each other. They really do care. They really do have a community. And I hate them, but I'm jealous of some of the stuff they have. That's the feel. Let them resist our doctrine but they should be compelled by our community. Let them to resist our beliefs, but they should be jealous for what we experience in Christ in hospitality and love so that they'll be invited and welcomed in. Oh, we could say a whole lot, of, a, a whole lot about that, and I think we will say some more about that. Um, we're going to do some meetings right before we start meeting in the new building. Uh, we're going to do some meetings before we're officially meeting there uh, on Sundays. We're going to do a few Tuesday, midweek meetings there where we can have some family talk about preparing for company um, and some of that kind of stuff. So hospitality will be one of the topics we'll talk about right before we move into the building. But we want to be hospitable towards one another. And that just means coming and who can I, 
who can I find to welcome? One of the church, I was, two churches ago, uh, it's not like I've been in a ton of churches, but I was in a church for about 10 years in Pasadena, California, church 10 years in um, uh, San Diego. Now I've been here 10 years. I'm not going anywhere. So I'm here and uh, God willing. And, uh, but one of the persons I remember in, in, when I was in Pasadena, there was this family and they just said, here's what we always do. We just get a crock pot of food on. We have no plant. We just get a crock pot, whatever it is. We got a meal ready at home every Sunday morning. And we just find someone that we don't know. And we just find someone to, that we don't know or looks lonely or is new or is going through a hard time. Struggling. We, just, we invite them over for lunch. It's already ready to go. That's what we do every Sunday. And maybe we invite two or three people and they're busy and that's okay, more for us. But that's what we try to do every week. And I thought that's the heart. That's what we're talking about, hospitality. Hospitality. Last thing, and we, this will be really brief, and this is a whole sermon, but it's going to be really brief. Serve with your gifts. Love one another, show hospitality, and serve with your gifts. He says, as each one received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. Isn't this wonderful? He says, God has given you gifts. Don't sit on them. Don't waste them. Don't waste your time being jealous that somebody else has the gifts you want, and I wish I could do that like she can, and I wish I could do that like... No, use your gifts, is what he says. And the emphasis here, there's a couple of other passages, one in 1 Corinthians, one in Romans, that talk about gifts that, that list them out, other gifts. He doesn't list them. And this is, there's a beautiful point here. He just gives two categories, two gifts. There's speaking and they're serving. Now, there's a lot of stuff under there. So like we could look at other passages of scripture and say speaking might be gifts like teaching, might be gifts like exhortation, um, might be leadership gifts, something like that. And then there's, there's serving gifts, which might be, which you serve through teaching as well. But it might be gifts like helps or might be gifts like giving or mercy or administration or something like that. So he's saying there's different kinds of gifts, but his emphasis isn't on gift identification. His emphasis is on serving. So what he says here that's so powerful is whatever your gifts are, use it to serve one another. This is, I'm going to read a sentence, two sentences to you. This is some of the wisest counsel I've ever heard about spiritual gifts. It's from Ed Clowney in a commentary on this. And this is what he says about this verse we just read. Gifts are discovered in service. We might rightly ask about the gift we have received, but we will not gain the answer by introspection. You don't find out your gifts by doing this right here, just looking inside your head, well, who am I and what am I? And, and there can be some help. You can, I mean, there's some kind of evaluation quizzes you can take about yourself, and there, there's some things that can help. But the usual way you find out your gifts are not by sitting on the sideline and finding out, I don't know, am I a quarterback? Am I a receiver? Am I a lineman? You don't find that out in the stands, you're not participating. You find that out when you get in to practice and throw a few balls and catch a few balls and hit a few people. It's a metaphor. It's, a, it's an illustration. So do you see what I'm saying? And he's saying, this is what it is. Whatever your gifts are, he's not even concerned. Uh, you know, I, whatever it is, just get in there and serve one another with it. And it'll be refined over time. Your give, you get into your, call, your specific gifts and calling and who God's made you to be and what he's deposited in you. You get in that, you, you get that sweet spot by stewarding it, by taking some steps forward. And that's oftentimes just doing whatever needs to be done. Sometimes people say, well, I don't know what my gift is. Once I find it out, I'll serve. 
No, serve and you'll find out what your gift is and someone can help you. Oftentimes it comes by someone observing. Wow, you've been helping me out in the children's ministry. Have you ever thought about teaching? Oh, not me. No, you got a teaching. You told the story this week and it was excellent. The kids were listening. They were paying attention. They were leaning in. You've got a teaching. Have you ever thought about teaching? Oh, I don't have a teaching. I just saw it. You have, I think you do. It often, I, well, I was just showing up here to pick up the toys and, you know, kind of be crowd controlled. You've got a teaching gift. You found out just that way. So that's often, that's often how it works. And we're going to do some teaching about this as well to help people uh, find out their gifts a little better as well. We haven't done a great job at this, I don't think, as pastors in this church. I don't think we've done the best job really helping people find this. And we're talking about even adding some material in our new members class that none of you have heard yet because it's not created. But we're thinking about doing some which would be helping people find some of this. But even if we teach and when we teach how to know, it, the major point will be what's being said right here. It's not picking the list of 12. I'm number eight. It's serving. Serve one another with the gifts God has given you, is what he said. If you're speaking, do it as if you're speaking the very words of God, the oracles of God. Speak soberly, thinking seriously about this is the truth. So that means use God's word. Speak with God's word. And then he says, um, if you are serving, do it with the strength that God supplies. So even if it's something that feels natural to you, uh, you need to be dependent on the Lord. Uh, so it's not, well, that's my gift, so I, I don't need the Holy Spirit for that one. No, you're dependent. He says, do it with the strength God supplies. Why? So that God may be glorified. So this is what he says, use your gifts. Why? To serve one another. God gives us gifts for two reasons. Verse 10, to serve one another. Verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 11, so that in everything God may be glorified. So here's this passage, which talking to people a long time ago, but man, I think it hits home for us. I want comfort. And he says, you know what? The Christian life is not about your physical comfort. It is about serving the Lord. And that means not everybody's going to love you and you're going to have some difficulties in it. But the Lord's with us because when we are being resisted, we're being resisted because we're in union with Christ. And Jesus promises never to leave us for, for forsake us. And Jesus promises to work in us and through us in those difficult times. So expect some resistance. And secondly, ex- it's a call to resistance, but it, I mean, it's a call to, um, it's a call to, uh, to persecution. Uh, we're called to suffer. And then we are also called to the church. And he's created the church as a wonderful, wonderful place where people sincerely love one another with forgiveness and mercy and cover sin, where people open their homes and open their hearts to one another so that no one is left out. Ideally, a community of people all connected together. That's God's goal. That's God's plan. And he's called us to use our gifts so that we can serve each other, build each other up, help each other know the Lord, and we can honor the Lord through that. So in the difficulty they're experiencing, he doesn't say give up. He doesn't say isolate. He says press into God's people and watch what he will do. And he says the exact same thing to us. The exact same thing to us. May we embrace the calling and the difficulties that that he brings in our lives. May we trust him in those. and May we be changed by him through those. And may we pursue the people of God, loving one another, extending hospitality to one another, and using our gifts to serve one another. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.